Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk today with Jonathan Rosen, who is author of a new book about caring for someone who suffers from mental illness, about the kinds of support those caregivers need and the lack of support they often feel. Important conversation about a wrenching subject, one that so many Americans are grappling with. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. How do we help people who have experiences that we may not fully understand? How do we help those who are perceiving the world in ways that are so different from many of the rest of us? It's a pretty incisive and important question for people who are diagnosed with things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and PTSD, and the people who are in their lives. All of these things can make the people who suffer from these conditions have lives that are very challenging. But those of us who live with them who support them, who try to care for them, also faced tremendous challenges. In the not-too-distant past, people with severe mental illnesses were placed in really awful asylums. But even after we got rid of those places, there are other problems that developed. Severely mentally ill individuals often now have nowhere to really turn. They end up on American streets. They end up in our prisons. They end up in our jails. You can see it very vividly in cities all over the country, and especially here in Detroit. We really haven't figured out how to support people who suffer from mental illness in a compassionate and effective way. And we certainly haven't figured out how to provide adequate, appropriate support for the people around them. What do we do? How do we fix this problem? Jonathan Rosen is someone who understands this story quite intimately. He's the author of several books, and his new cover story for The Atlantic is titled American Madness, and it explores the severe mental illness of his close friend and how he and thousands of others did not get the care they needed and still need. 
In this case, the result was quite tragic. To talk about the story of Jonathan's friend, the challenges of properly caring for people who suffer from severe mental illness, and how we better care for the people who care for them, we've got Jonathan Rosen here with us today. Jonathan, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I want to start, of course, with you telling us a little about your friend, Michael Lauder, who is who he is. How did you know him? And tell us a little about your friendship. So Michael was my best friend in childhood. I met him when I moved to New Rochelle, a Westchester suburb of New York City uh, in 1973. We were both 10 years old. We shared the same short street. We did everything together. We went to camp together. We competed for things. We grew up together. We both went to Yale. He graduated. He was a much better student than I was. His mind worked much better than mine. He graduated in three years. Hmm. Uh, Worked briefly for a management consulting firm. His plan was we were both going to be writers. He was going to work for 10 years, make a lot of money, and then write. But already in his first year, he began to show the signs of what was eventually diagnosed as schizophrenia. And so that was, um, that, that, that brings us up to that, a certain moment in, um, in our lives together. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, but, but as you mentioned, I think the consequences were quite tragic. And in fact, uh, you know, in your introduction, you, you talked about all those perplexing questions. Uh, the, the Atlantic piece grew out of a book the best minds that mm-hmm. I spent 10 years writing because I wasn't sure how to frame the questions, how to tell the story, and how much did I have to go back in time to understand how it was that when he eventually got sick, the system around him was already was already broken. Yeah. So, so I, I want to have you talk just a little about that moment or those moments when you realized that this person who was so close to you um, was struggling with these things. And and I guess what your sense of your role or responsibility was uh, to, to, to address that, to, to, to be there and support him. Those are great questions. Uh, I remember my father calling and telling me that both my parents were on the phone, which was always a bad sign. I thought my grandmother had died Mm -hmm. and they had that somber voice you use for calamity. And they were telling me uh, that uh, Michael had had a a break. My father kept saying a break. I had no idea what that meant, uh, that he was in a psychiatric hospital and um, they didn't know his diagnosis, but that uh, my mother told me, which I found so shocking, it, it was uh, almost impossible to absorb, that he thought he had thought his parents were Nazi replicas of his actual parents. And so he'd been, you know, patrolling the house with a kitchen knife until his mother had to block herself into a room. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, as, as often happens, there had been many signs actually over many years but it only came to a head with a with a true crisis in which the police were ultimately called. And the way in which mental health care was ceded to the police, almost like they were armed ambulance drivers, was part of one, the, something among many things I, I had to 
discover as I later investigated. But at the time, it was just the shock of it, not knowing what it was. I called his father right away, and our friendship had already drifted. Uh, and perhaps even for reasons that were connected to his developing illness. Uh, but I, his father told me he was in a locked ward. I'd never heard that phrase. It sounded dreadful. It sounded like prison. How could that be? And when I called him, he said, I've never been in prison before. Although in many ways that hospitalization was a great gift to him uh, because it allowed doctors to find medication for him and to stabilize him. And he went on to have a whole other chapter uh, of his life, um, even though that ultimately was um, gave way to tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the the support and the the care that was available for Michael at, at the time that this this happened, and and it looks different in some ways, I think, than than what we would see today. But but I also want to give you a chance to talk about the the sort of tragic consequence of of all of this um what happened uh and and how that affected not just him and you and uh, uh other people but the 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 effect on the arc i guess of his story um from yeah. this this incident well in a sense Maybe one way to say something that also goes back to our childhood is that he was incredibly smart and his mind worked better than mine. Part of the devastation of the news was that we were competitive, but he was always a touchstone of high mental functioning. You know, I had dyslexia, although I didn't know it at the time, but I was always faking, pretending, fearing that I would be exposed or caught. And so for me, I always felt my mind, even though I could compensate verbally, perhaps, was all subterfuge. He seemed all overtness, and he was also arrogant. So he would, you know, it was like someone who could tell you what he was going to do and wasn't afraid to say it and then go and do it. He would re recite whole passages from books uh, that he simply remembered. And the, the setting when I went back to our childhood, you know, the, the book is called The Best Minds, not ironically only, but partly also because we somehow believed being smart was going to save you. And I don't even, it's hard to describe what that meant, but we lived in this moment of meritocracy where it wasn't just a means to an end, but almost a thing in itself. And he had that thing. And so when he became ill, A, it was extremely un, uh, um, disorienting, but B, his mind had always been his instrument of salvation. Could he think his way out of his illness? What was it going to, what was going to happen? And so uh, what had happened though is before his break, he had applied to law school and gotten into all of them. And from his hospital bed, he, or from the hall payphone, he told his brother to reject them all except defer Yale Law School. And ultimately he wound up going to Yale Law School from the halfway house. And what's so hard to get across in, 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 a, in a short space in a way is, I guess what I'd say is the subtitle of my book. Mm -hmm. It's the story of friendship, madness, and the tragedy of good intentions. Because people kept feeling that his mind would save him. That his professors, and he had wonderful mentors at Yale Law School, but they 
they understood he couldn't do the work, but they continued to see his brilliance as a justification for their accommodating him. He needed a place to be after yeah. all. And yeah. so I'm not really answering how we got to that point where somehow Yale Law School was a better, was a kind of asylum, you know, for a time wow. because there weren't such places. But at the same time, he didn't under, he saw himself as functioning well and becoming a Yale lawyer. Although one of his professors said to me, I never thought he was going to be a Yale lawyer. I thought he would be an advocate for people with schizophrenia who had been to Yale Law School. Whereas Michael, it had been suggested that he start by working at Macy's just while he, as an intermediate step, or maybe he would need to do something like that for longer. But he would say, why would I bag groceries or work at Macy's when I can be a Yale um, lawyer? But his professors who were encouraging him didn't see that as his future. But the one more thing I'd add is just, I needed to come to terms with why that should be the choice. Is Yale Law School the only form of salvation? Is it so dreadful if you're, you know, what did we think being smart meant? Like, did it vault us over all the ordinary lives of all the people who struggle for all kinds of reasons? I had a relative with schizophrenia who worked as a messenger when he was able to. Did that make him less? And so there is this notion, this um, exalted notion of intelligence that can, that that's important, but it was exaggerated and people felt they were honoring his intelligence and his autonomy, mm -hmm. even when unmedicated, he had lost touch with reality. Mm -hmm. And that's the paradox that I'm also exploring. We mm -hmm. do it all the time. We think we're helping people by, by destigmatizing them, by denying any possibility of difference when actually it's only by acknowledging it that we could help it, if you know what I mean. Sure. And he ends up doing something quite awful. Um, he ends up doing something awful. Should I say what? It, should I talk about sure, that? Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to have our listeners understand where this ends. So, he wasn't able to get hired. He he finished Yale Law School. He couldn't get a job. He wanted to be a professor of law. His professor said, "Don't tell anyone you have schizophrenia." When he applied without telling anyone, he didn't get hired. So the following year, he decided to come out as a schizophrenic. He called himself a flaming schizophrenic. He still didn't get hired, but the New York Times wrote a big profile of him, sort of championing his cause. And as a result of that profile, Ron Howard at Imagine bought his life story to be a movie. Yeah. And publishers were in a bidding war to buy a memoir that the movie was gonna be based on. They were both gonna be called The Laws of Madness. And so for a brief exalted moment, it seemed as if he had done an end run around his illness just the way we always thought being creative and writing could do. You know, you tell your story of troubles and you triumph over them just by being the guy to tell them. And, um, but he couldn't write it, the book. The movie was moving ahead. Brad Pitt was going to play him. He moved into a Westchester town, uh, Hastings on Hudson, with his girlfriend and fiance, Carrie. Um, and then he was off his medication and, um, he killed, he stabbed and killed his fiance and his unborn child and was suddenly having been profiled in the New York Times uh, where he was a hero to many. He was on the cover of the New York Post under a giant headline that said psycho so big that, you know, if you'd added an exclamation point, it would have fallen off the 
page and somehow trying to understand those two visions, you know, the lofty vision uh, that was this wonderful, exalting profile that led to the book and the movie deal, and then the demonizing portrait, even though um, it, it would, they were both so extreme that it was trying to understand in a way the, the parts between those two poles, which involved the person I actually had known. Mm. Uh, that was part of my motivation to understand it. We do better horribly by thinking of things in like Manichaean terms, you know? Yep. This is, you know, he's, he's transcended, conquered, defeated his illness, or it's a source of higher insight, or it's demonic and must be pursued, you know? That's the middle place that you were talking about in the opening. How do we actually help people? What can we really do? That's much harder because mm -hmm. it's difficult and daily and not a grand statement. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking with uh, Jonathan Rosen. He is uh, the author of several books. He has a new cover story in The Atlantic titled American Madness. It is about the severe mental illness of his close friend and how he and thousands of others are not getting the proper care uh, that they need. It is based on a book, The Best Minds. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Jonathan. I also want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Call and tell us uh, whether you know someone who suffers from mental health challenges. Uh, do you take care of someone who suffers from mental illness. Tell us what that experience is like. What kind of assistance do you feel is available for people who are suffering from uh, these kinds of things? And what kind of assistance do you think you need if you're someone who's taking care of someone who suffers from mental illness? Uh, we talk a lot on this show about the tattered infrastructure for mental illness in this state. Uh, call and tell us what your experience is navigating through all of that. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Our guest today is Jonathan Rosen. Uh, he has a new cover story in The Atlantic titled American Madness. And it's about the severe mental illness of his close friend and how he and thousands of others just don't get the care that they need. The story was adapted from Jonathan's forthcoming book, The Best Minds. Uh, we're talking about how difficult it can be uh, to find care if you are someone who suffers from mental illness and just as difficult uh, to find support for those of us who live with uh, and try to care for people who suffer from mental illness. We, of course, want to hear from you on the phones. Give us a sense of how you experience this part of our world, uh, especially here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, what uh, what do you think we can do differently uh, to better support people who suffer from mental illness? But also, what do you think we need to do to make sure that those 
who care for people with mental illness have proper support. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. And you can also go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we can work you into the conversation. Um, Before we go to our uh, listeners, Jonathan, I want to talk just a little about um, the care that your friend uh, Michael got uh, and how that changed or how it may look different from uh, what we would see uh, today. But, but first, just you, you visited Michael in a mental hospital before he went to Yale. I'm assuming this is sometime in the late 70s or early 80s. Um, it's a different time. Oh, I've just lost connection with you. I'm sorry. Oh, are you there? Yes, you oh. winked out. Oh, Some, okay. you, get, you said you imagined it was, were you going okay. to say the late 80s? Yes, uh, I was imagining it was either the late 70s or early 80s, but is it, is it later than that? It's, no, no, it's the late 80s. Okay. And the 80s were just when the full effects of what's called deinstitutionalization were, were playing out in cities all over the country, mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is that in a, in a way, I was astonished. Michael spent eight months in, a, in Columbia Presbyterian psychiatric ward, uh, which is unusual, uh, but that's a private hospital. It's also the case, I remember being astonished because he hated being there, that he had voluntarily signed himself in. His father had been able to persuade him that if he didn't, uh, he might be found um, unable to, you know, uh, he, he might be committed and then he wouldn't get out. Uh, I, I have to say that doesn't seem likely because the laws had changed so that unless you were an imminent danger, unless you were really violent, uh, either posing an immediate threat to your own health, you were about to kill yourself, or an immediate threat to somebody else, you really couldn't be held. And so what had happened, again, out of a desire to kind of empty the state hospitals and then slam the door behind them is that laws were changed, but what they wound up doing was making severe illness synonymous with violence. Um, and he wasn't sh- sufficient to showing such dangerous signs that he would have been kept for that long. But it, it gave him a chance uh, to be there uh, for a long time. But then the question is, what do you do when you get out? It, time is one of the things we don't give people in the modern world. So he was lucky in that he got into a halfway house. I actually visited a halfway house run by the same group. And it was, a, it was a, I thought it was a wonderful place. It was an actual house in the suburbs. And I, but they were, there was a very limited amount of time people could be there. I said to one of the people who worked there, what happens if this is just right for them, you know? And uh, in two years time when they have to leave, there's no place for them to go. And there was very little supported housing in those days. So the person said to me, and she was a social worker, she said, well, if, if they have to go, then they might just leave. Maybe they'd go home, stay with friends or family if they would have them. Maybe have another break, go to the hospital, and if they were lucky, get discharged here again. That is not a good system because, of course, every time that happens, you return that much lower, you know, that that, that much more um, like eroded, compromised. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to put someone through. Um, and so what was missing were all the intermediate steps that had been promised, by the way, when 
John F. Kennedy said in 1963, it was the last piece of legislation, major piece of legislation he signed before being assassinated, mm-hmm. that they were going to replace cold custodial care with the warm embrace of the community. Mm-hmm. A hard thing to legislate, yeah. you know. Yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, Let's go to Cassie in Ann Arbor. Cassie, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm. Um, I have had a son who was diagnosed with schizophrenia at about 22. Uh, For years, they thought it was, you know, drugs and whatever. Um, But I also have a stepson. Who's older than him? And hindsight's twenty twenty. There's a lot of denial and a lot of uh, still stigma and fear about it. Um, he was a brilliant kid, but every time uh, my stepson, we found medication that helped stabilize him. But my son, we never found anything. And it was in and out of the hospitals, and the care was so much better when they had a program for uh, mental health. People with mental health problems, but then they gutted that program and it became criminal. He became criminalized mm-hmm. and he was in and out of the jail as he wandered the streets. But um, ultimately, he 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 was tragically killed. Um, oh, no. Last anyway, but uh, ultimately, hindsight's twenty twenty. I I just would like to make a plea that people see it for what it really is. Um, it's a deterioration of the brain. My mother had Alzheimer's, and I saw her brain deteriorate over years. And my son, when I, I could see him, every episode, his brain, his brilliant brain, would become more mm. feral, and it became more difficult for him to do the activities of daily living and to, to take care of things because of his being stuck in this unrealistic, yeah. you know, re, uh, take on reality. You know, not being able to be in reality because his brain, and he was always, always trying to figure out how to fix it because he was brilliant, but, you know, there's, you know, when the brain's broken, the brain can't fix itself. Cassie, I'm really glad you called and and shared that experience. I mean, it's it's so personal, and and I really uh, want to extend uh, my condolences about your son. Um, that's a that's a terrible end to that story as well. Uh, Jonathan, I wonder um, th- this point about the physical aspect of it and um, the, the difficulty that that uh, people who suffer from mental illness have. Um, you know, making their brains, often brilliant brains, work um, the way that they want them to. Uh, is that reflected anywhere in the care for this? Uh, and and give me a sense of, for your friend Michael, whether, whether that was an understanding um, that anybody had or that he had about what he was, what he was suffering through. Uh, well, I thought what Cassie said was, first of all, heartbreaking. Uh, tragically, a story I've heard many versions of, and in many ways very connected to Michael's story and the story I'm trying to tell. There are, you know, the people who suffer from severe, what's called severe mental illness, it's about 4% of the population. And of that very small percent, still a considerable number of people, because we all live in a big country, there's a percentage who have as a symptom of their illness not knowing they're ill even. And how do you, in a society that honors individual choice and freedom, 
impose on someone who doesn't believe he or she is ill the medication or care necessary. That is the crux of it. And that doesn't mean that there isn't you know, suffering and mental illness at, a, at every level. But one of the things I came to recognize was how we redefined the meaning of mental illness. So we were gonna close the psychiatric hospitals for the most intractably ill, but the, well, they were replaced with community mental health centers. Nothing wrong with that, but what you call something is telling. And I, you know, there's a guy who wrote a, a wonderful memoir about running a community mental health center uh, in uh, Baltimore in the late 60s. And he was in a very poor part of the city. And he, they were all really idealistic and they were determined to help everybody. They felt everybody was suffering from the mental upset of being poor, marginalized, victims of racism. The one group they weren't going to care for because they only had limited resources were the people released from psychiatric hospitals. So what did you do if you lived in that community? You were just as poor, just as marginalized, just as victimized mm -hmm. by racism, but you had the misfortune of having a son or daughter or father or aunt who had a psychotic break. Well, you called the cops. This guy admits it in his memoir. And so you can see how idealistic people can literally criminalize the, the illness most in, that, in need of care that the community centers have been created to minister to. So people say all the time, you see journalists and saying half of America suffers at one time or another from mental illness. And that's technically true. The DSM, the manual, you know, diagnostic statistical manual, mm -hmm. uh, has everything in it from arachnophobia to schizophrenia, you know, fear of spiders to schizophrenia. But in fact, there are only a small a small percentage of people who are that ill and when they are that ill and it is a biological illness applying psychoanalytic methods or methods separate from recognizing that someone is physically you know has an organic brain disease even though it affects the mind so of course it manifests in all kinds of ways denying that is going to deny people care that can really save their lives and we're simply not set up for it when michael and i were young 1976, I think it was, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won like the Academy mm. Award for Best Picture, I think, and, may, and probably a bunch of other awards. Well, the main hero, the character, the main character played by Jack Nicholson is in a mental hospital. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have mental illness. Yeah. He's, he's just a victim of an arbitrarily cruel society. So the mental hospital is a metaphor. And Michael used to say to me, when he would talk about his halfway house, he's like, I'm really the McMurphy character. Mm -hmm. Well, McMurphy's the one guy who isn't ill. Mm -hmm. And so that cultural confusion reflected in laws and, you know, resources. It, everyone needs resources, but the kind of resources that Cassie's son needed were targeted and had to recognize that in certain cases, a kind of intervention may be required. And, and those, that's very expensive, but if it's focused, on those who most need it. There have to be hospital beds. There has to be a way to pay for it. You know, Medicaid often, it doesn't go for those sure. in state hospitals. Yeah. And why is that? It's because the federal government is like pays for it. They're the biggest mental health care provider, but they don't cover people getting the long-term care they may need. And so when states discovered this, because states had been caring for people with mental illness for over a hundred years, they just released people because it, and, and it became a bigger incentive than all the ideological misunderstandings. And so 
we're all I'm trying to say is we're in the midst of brokenness and one way to not fix it. And I'm I've been so humbled by the people who actually a are directly caring for those with severe mental illness, those who have severe mental illness, who lead heroic and, and often extremely uh, productive and triumphant lives, but also for the people who are um, who have to make arguments that are so difficult because they seem to go against our general expectations, which is how do we care? for a, a, a particular group of people who cannot care for themselves. And how do we make that determination? And as, as Cassie also said, by the way, I was always afraid because I was so close to Michael, God, I'm gonna get schizophrenia, you know, almost like it was a contagious matter. <laughs> but my, my father and both my in-laws had dementia. And I'm fully aware that my daughters or my family will have to make decisions about me that I did not, I may have dodged that young man's bullet, but the other one is waiting for me. And what provision do we make for people in that mysterious gray area that in which they require care, but have been used to living autonomous lives. And it's really hard, yeah. but you gotta at least talk about it as you are doing, which is why I am so in fact, very grateful by how you framed this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cassie, again, uh, really sorry about uh, what happened with your son, but very, very grateful for you uh, calling in and sharing that experience with us. Let's next go to Abigail in Plymouth. Abigail, welcome to the show. Morning, Stephen. Hi. Um, I listen to your show all the time, and I think I probably call in too much. But <laughs> the point I okay. wanted to make was that um, I'm an emergency room nurse, and I deal with psychiatric emergencies all the time. Um, and sometimes we have people boarding in the ER for days. Um, there's just not always a place for them to go. So they're stuck in very non-therapeutic circumstances. Mm. Um, and all we can really do is try to keep them calm until there is a place for them. That situation is so much worse when you're talking about pediatric psychiatric emergencies because mm. there's even fewer resources for those kids. Sometimes they have to go out of state. And I've literally seen these kids board in the ER for sometimes weeks, which is just heartbreaking. Um, waiting for a and, placement. In yeah, ways. waiting for admission in a in a inpatient um, psychiatric facility. That is illegal in certain states. I used to practice in the state of Washington. It's not legal there. I don't know for sure if there's any laws on the books in the state of Michigan about that, but I think there should be. So that was the point I wanted to make. Yeah, yeah, uh, Abigail, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, that that point and and you calling to make it um, this this idea of what's available and especially for young people, Jonathan. Um, you know, here in Michigan, we really have absolutely destroyed much of uh, the mental health system, or at least the public mental health system, and left it to really the marketplace to try to try to fill the gaps. It's not working, as Abigail as Abigail points out. Um, but I wonder what you. See from the vantage point of, of Michael's experience that uh, that that sheds light on on this same on this same phenomenon. Well, so many things are tangled up with each other that it's um, it's what makes it so hard to fix in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's uh, one thing is that it, uh, paradoxically, I guess, because the system had become so dreadful. The people caring for him were determined to keep him out of it, almost as if saving him from the the broken mental health care system was more important or more urgent 
than addressing his actual illness. And they were, you know, had come of age in the, like the height of the 60s community mental health movement. And so they still un saw the psychiatric state hospitals at their worst, although they actually are, got even worse, I think. But, um, but they, they lost focus, A, on Michael's uh, need for actual care. And they also, uh, you know, they lost focus on the, what might happen to those around him if he didn't understand what was real and what was not. But also in the Atlantic piece, one of the things that I noted was that, you know, Mayor uh, Eric Adams has implemented really a very modest effort to allow uh, teams of people, caregivers or police or first responders to take those living on the street who are unhoused, not just homeless, but have, don't go to shelters, who are severely ill, so ill they don't know that they're ill and who are unable to care for themselves to bring them to hospitals for evaluation. That itself raised a giant cry as if everyone was being rounded up and, and, and shipped away. But in fact, all they were doing was being taken to the hospital for evaluation. They weren't being committed. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, that has to happen is that he can't do is that there are, need to be hospital beds. Those are controlled by the state. And a New York state lost a thousand hospital beds during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. They were repurposed for COVID patients. Now, I have no, who decided that a hospital bed for someone with severe mental illness was like an elective knee surgery, you know, a, something that had to step aside in a pandemic, I, I don't know. Yeah. But I do know that we've only gotten back like half of them. And, th and I'm sure that the governor is trying. But in other words, a city proposal can only do so much. It will only work ultimately if the state also does things. And the federal government has to do things so that Medicaid reimbursements can go to those who do need to be in long-term care facilities. And the number of beds that are needed, I'm the wrong person to tell you. I mean, policy turned out to be even harder than trying to understand the neuroscience, you know? Hmm. And, um, but it, it's, um, it's, it's not as daunting. What had happened, as I mentioned, was that community care became something for everyone. And if it's for everyone, if everyone is mentally ill, then nobody is, especially those who don't necessarily come forward for care, who can't. And of course, we also live in an era of street drugs. And when you talk about young people, something I was aware of in retrospect was I was always terrified of drugs. You know, for Michael, smoking pot, that's what you did in the 70s. And that is a devastation for people with a predisposition to psychotic disorders. It doesn't give you schizophrenia, but if you have a predisposition towards it, it can, in fact, have a devastating effect. And here we have, you know, it, it, to decriminalize something and to make it available without thinking about that, what effect it might have on young people who are in their most vulnerable is really important, you know. I interviewed a woman who ran a brain lab while I was researching my book, and I asked her, we were talking about kids, oh, do you have any kids? She said, yes, I have two. One of them is still in the danger zone. I said, what does that mean? <laughs> she said, well, he, he's, you know, not yet 24 or 25. It turned out her grandfather was one of 10 who had committed suicide in this enormous family in Australia. And so her understanding was that until that brain is finished forming, I mean, look, she worked in a place where there were giant freezers filled with brains. That's what she did all day. She was an extraordinary person researching um, in a brain lab. But um, that's not a consciousness one might have nowadays or in any, you know, era. And it's, it's important because 
for young people, your brain is, is still forming. Yeah. And, and yeah. so in any case, all these things came into play um, and, 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 are still, and are still with us. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Jonathan Rosen about his piece in The Atlantic, his book, and his friend, Michael Lauder. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social Tanya and Lavonia, Brandon and Auburn Hills, you'll be up next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. We're talking with Jonathan Rosen. He's the author of several books, and he's got a new cover story in The Atlantic titled American Madness. It is about the severe mental illness of a close friend of his. The story was adapted from his forthcoming book, The Best Minds. Uh, we're talking about uh, people who suffer from mental illness, uh, the help and support that is available, the help and support that is not available for them, and also importantly, uh, the help and support that's available for those who care for people who suffer from mental illness. Of course, we want to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Uh, let's go next to Brandon in Auburn Hills. Brandon, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I was calling to uh, tell the story about my uh, my father. So uh, eight years ago, um, he was uh, had bipolar one, uh, major depressive disorder, and him and my mom were going through a divorce. So uh, he did attempt multiple times in about a uh, two month period, and uh, I wanted to comment on how abysmal the the health system is to try to get him help. Um, Took him to the emergency room multiple times, no beds available, so they would go ahead and release him. Um, finally, after an attempt, uh, we were able to get the police to take him to a facility where they had to keep him. Um, he left us voicemails that when he got out, he was going to attempt again. Showed him to social workers and doctors, and they said, we got him on his medicine, he's stable. Released him after the 72-hour mark, and... Unfortunately, about a week later, he ended up losing his, his battle to mental health. So oh, no. I would love to see a system where um, we could be able to keep people uh, for more observation, more support when they get out. Because it seems like 72 hours, you let them go with almost almost no support system. Just yeah. We got you stabilized on medicines and there is uh, the, nothing else to do. Here, here's some phone numbers you could try to call. Yeah. So, so, Brandon, before I have Jonathan Rosen talk about uh, this experience as well, I, give me a sense for you of what that was like as as someone who, who was, I assume, trying to help help your father, trying to help care for him. Did you feel supported in... In that role, uh, what kinds of things uh, did you experience uh, as as you go through this? I mean, it's a it's a terrible story and a tragic end. I'm wondering uh, how you navigate that. 
there was very little resources. I, I did seek out a therapist on my own to speak through things while I was going through it, but I was uh, the main person uh, getting him to the hospital. And even um, when he did uh, uh, pass, um, I was there. I was the first one on the scene. And even the support from, from law enforcement officers uh, who were there said to me, um, you need to be strong. You're the man now. You need to take care of your mother instead of helping me navigate dealing with a tragic loss or, or finding some sort of resources to help with then my own own grief and dealing with mental health from, from taking care of him for, sure. for a couple of years. Yeah. Brandon, um, I, I'm, I'm really sorry about the experience, but I'm really glad that you called and, and shared it. Jonathan, I want to get your reaction to, to Brandon's story. Well, I'm so sorry. Um, and it, the trail of tragedy is long. One of the things I kept discovering, you know, when I started writing the book is 10 years ago, everything seemed particular to my own experience or Michael's experience. You know, he lived on my street, so that's why. If it hadn't been a public story, overwhelmingly public, I would never have written it. But if it hadn't been personal, I couldn't have written it. And in a sense, what I keep discovering is that he didn't just live next door to me. He lived next door to everybody. Mm -hmm. The number of people I've spoken to who are once removed from the shadow of that calamity is, is extraordinary. And I feel like it's so it's it's very the people who have called already are doing something heroic and hard because it requires acknowledging, um, as one of the callers said, the the dimensions of the disorders you're dealing with, because if you hand someone a telephone number or medication, that's not the same as as helping them. So, you know, again, it's important for people to go the treatment advocacy center which was created by Fuller Torrey, who's an amazing psychiatrist, written many books about deinstitutionalization, is an enormous resource. And there are now things like assisted outpatient treatment. Those are quite often set a very, very hard, high bar, and, and you have to have been violent and hospitalized a number of times. But there's also a movement to try to expand it, not to arbitrarily subject people to treatment, but to f- make sure that families who know, who are caring for someone, can go to a court and get a certain level of care uh, for the, for someone until they're stabilized. And ideally, if they are, they can then participate in their care. But you have to begin by recognizing the nature of the illnesses and, and resisting the temptation then. So to speak about it all as one general fungible mass of, of people. So if there are, you know, there are forensic caseworkers and assertive treat, community treatment, these are all really important things that have to happen in cities, also supportive housing, where psychiatrists can, you know, work, visit or live in, uh, or social, and so psychiatric social workers can live in housing that helps stabilize people. And these things were being done and, and they are still being done. The people who did them in the 80s were not part of the community mental health center. There were two priests in Chelsea, there was a a social work student at Columbia, and they just went around noticing, good God, these people are ill and they're just left out here. And they went up and they tried to buy SR, single room occupancy housing with services. And, And some of that is changing, but the resistance, as I say, to even small efforts that require acknowledging 
the, the, the difficulty and dangerousness of some of these disorders if left untreated is, is painful and difficult yeah. because we live in a society that appropriately doesn't want to say anyone's different from anyone else. But in the same way that if I you know, was unconscious on the sidewalk, maybe I had a stroke, maybe I had a heart attack, maybe I have low blood sugar, I hope somebody would call an ambulance for me and figure out you know, later what I needed and what was what was wrong? For some reason, we decide it's a choice in other ways. And I'll just tell one story because it, it, it happened just as Michael was living in a halfway house. In, the, in New York City, there was a woman who called herself Billy Boggs and she lived on the streets of New York City. She covered herself in excrement. She screamed at people. She um, was, she, if people gave her money, she tore it up and burnt it and peed on it. And, um, she was then, there was a new program that the then mayor was attempting and she was hospitalized and medicated and she immediately sued for release and the New York branch of the Civil Liberties Union took her case. And what was extraordinary is that she had four sisters who came every day, middle class, um, actually working class black women who were religious, who were furious that people had turned the sister they had known in a very different way, who they had struggled to care for into a symbol of independence and freedom. And the, ju the judge who freed her, who said, no, oh, she's living a proud and independent life. The sisters then said, if that's his idea of a, of a black woman living a proud independent life, he's gotta be a racist because he would never leave his own sister living on the street, swearing at people. The psychiatrist who testified on her behalf said, well, it's true she burns money and pees on it, but I lost a lot of money in the stock market. And I hope she doesn't think I'm crazy for getting a burn there. And this was, a, he didn't, mm. he was a psychoanalyst, but he was also a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist who worked at Bellevue testified that she needed to be there, but she won her case. And what was amazing is this was the 80s. This was the end of the 80s, just, this is the world into which Michael was stepping and into which he, that he'd need care. Mm. And the, the desire to erase and normalize the behavior of someone who was clearly ill. The sisters had a picture of her from a wedding when she had a job and was working and they had all tried to care for her in yeah. their homes yeah. before they couldn't. And their voices were silenced. Wow. And why people thought they were bestowing a, a favor on her somehow, uh, honoring her autonomy and leaving her really to disintegrate on the streets is one of those mysteries that if we do not rise above or solve, going to be very hard to solve this yeah. because there are going to be more stories like the ones mm -hmm. you've heard and, and like my friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the issue. Yeah, yeah. Or part of it. Believe me, it has a million parts. I was going to say, it was, uh, we could go on, of course, uh, for hours and hours talking about this. Um, uh, but Jonathan Rosen, we are out of time. I, I really want to thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, it's a wonderful article in the Atlantic, and I've got the book sitting here right next to me. I'm about a third of the way through it. Um, but it's such an important issue, and uh, it's such a heart-wrenching story, uh, this, this tale of uh, your relationship with your friend and what it tells us about everything else. Thank you so much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and we'll have more great programming here on Detroit Today. Also, remember, if you like the show and enjoy listening, you should share it with the people around you. It's really easy to find us on WDET.org, or you can download the Detroit Today podcast wherever 
you get your podcasts. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.